0: come to the scripture let me uh, please ask you to bow with me to pray father in heaven you tell us that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path father we walk uh, we, we live life so we need your help we need your guidance we need your grace and your strength so i pray And that you would fulfill your promise to us in this word this morning, that it would be a light and a lamp to us. So by it we can see how it is that we're to walk, how it is that we're to live this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Colossians in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want to begin. I want to read verses 22 in chapter 3 through chapter 4 and verse 1. Colossians 3, please. Hear the word of God. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. masters treat your slaves justly and fairly. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now remember this is in a context. The context is the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is this letter that Paul writes to this particular group of people and to us. It's amazing. It's amazing what we hold in our hands, this Bible. Because when Paul was moved by various circumstances and thoughts to write to this group of people, he was also at the very same time writing to all people. And so this word is applicable to them, it's applicable to us. And so it's amazing what we have here in our hands. An ancient document, ancient book, yeah, speaks to us. Because what transcends... From there to here is the Spirit of God. And so that same Spirit in Paul working in him now works even still ah, in us as we read. So he was writing to them and his desire for them, his desire for us, God's desire for them, God's desire for us is that they we walk worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him. So as Paul lays out this letter, he lays it out in such a way as to show the worth of Christ, to show that Christ is indeed worthy of our lives. And so he describes Christ. He says that, yes, he's our creator. And indeed, he's our redeemer. He's the one who reconciles us to God. He's head over all things. Thus, he is to be preeminent, most important, in all things he's the one who is to to define everything he's the one who is to direct everything we're to follow him and we're to give him thanks even as we do so because he is to be our delight and so Paul lays out who Christ is and he says in Christ is hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. And so in this spiritual wisdom and understanding that we're to have, Paul lays this out, and the way that he lays it out is by laying out for us who Christ is. He says, if you can get him, if you can understand him, if you can trust in him, belong to him, then you see this spiritual wisdom and understanding is yours, that you can walk in a manner that is the way that God would have you walk, the way that you've always been made to walk, to walk worthy of Christ. Paul organizes his whole life around the person of Christ, and he tells them that as well. And he says, now, if you're going to do this, if you're going to walk worthy of Christ, then you need to to set your minds on things that are above where Christ is, of course. And we set our minds on things above because that's where Christ is. He's ruling and reigning. When we, when we do that when we, when we set our minds on things above, we realize that that's where Christ is. And he's the sovereign one. He's ruling and reigning. He is preeminent actually over all things. And thus, our focus of our, our attention is upon him. Not on earthly things. That, that doesn't mean that we're not concerned about our lives on earth. It's, it's important to be aware of what we're doing here, especially when we're driving and things like that. But it's really important. But, but he says, you get the wisdom on how to live here. You get the strength for how to live here, not from the wisdom of the world, but from the wisdom from Christ. So set your mind there, and that will enable you then to live here. And what you realize when you set your minds there, yes, he is ruling and reigning. Yes, he is this one who is Christ, is the Lord. And we realize that because he died, we died. Thus now we live and we live in him. And our lives are hidden with Christ in God, secure there. And one day, that is when Christ returns, all that will be made known. We'll see it. And right now, however, we're, we're living that out on earth. The fact that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So he says, now what we need to do is to put off everything that's inconsistent with walking worthy of Christ. And we need to put on all that which is true of Christ. So we put on compassion and kindness. We put on humility and meekness. We put on patience. And and we bear with each other. And we forgive each other because we've been forgiven in Christ Jesus. And he says, and we're we're to live together therefore in peace, if we really get it, if we really understand, if we really know that, that we belong to Christ and our life is in Him, then we'll live together in peace because, because He died to achieve that peace, not only peace between us and God, but peace among each other, and with each other. And so, He so you live in peace and your, your whole lives, your communication, will be informed by the fact that the Word of Christ richly dwells in you. And then it's as if, as if Paul bookends this section of his, of his letter. He began by saying that we're to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then in the, in the middle of chapter 3, in verse 17, he says, And everything, whatever we do or say, we're to do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, that is worthy of Him. We're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, worthy of Him. We're to do everything that we do, say everything that we say in such a way that Jesus can put His name on it and say, yeah, that belongs to me. That's as if I did it. That's as if I said it. Yes, yes that, that's, that's in my name. <clears throat> giving thanks, because we're grateful to this very one who is the Lord, this one who saved us, this one who has called us to live in and through Him. We give thanks to God the Father through him. Now, Paul then says, well, what's this mean? How does this apply? And So he takes basic foundational life relationships, marriage, family, work, and he says, here's how you apply that. This is what that means in all of that. And so we've talked about husbands and wives. We've talked about parents and children. And now he comes to this piece about slaves and masters. And in each instance, we realize that there is one who is head, that is, has authority, and there is another who submits to that authority. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. And all of that is done in the name of the Lord Jesus, out of fear of the Lord. It's fitting in Him. All of that because of who Christ is. Now, there's a bit of an elephant in this passage. It is something that looms so large that it overshadows anything that might be said unless we speak to it. So let me do that very quickly. I trust that none of you would refer to yourselves as slaves, at least in the sense in which Paul has it here. And so when Paul wrote to wives, wives heard it. When, we were, when he wrote to husbands, husbands heard it. When he wrote to children, children heard it, parents and fathers and so forth and in Paul's audience and the audience in which would hear this letter being read, the congregation of the church in Colossae there would have been real slaves, people who understood themselves to have belonged to another real slaves and real masters those who actually owned other people how? that It's offensive to us, Uh, given the experience that we have in our own history, the blights on our own history through the African slave trade, even now in the sex trafficking slave trade in our own country, we hear of slavery and all of that, and it's offensive to us as well as that should be. And so we wonder, just on the face of it, why Paul didn't speak to that. Why he didn't say, slaves and masters realize, culture, this is wrong. This shouldn't be. He doesn't do that. He speaks to slaves. He speaks to masters. But he doesn't, in the sense in which we might think, in the directness in which we might think, he doesn't speak to this issue as we might speak to it or think he should. So let me just give you five minutes on this to think this through. First of all, you need to understand, of course, a slavery in paul 's day versus our own historic experience with it, understand its pervasiveness, and understand how they understood it it doesn 't mean slavery was a walk in the park; it just simply means it was different in that context than in the context of our own of our own understanding and in, in the Roman Empire, it is likely that at least a third and up to a half of all the inhabitants of the Roman Empire, were slaves, were called slaves, were owned by another. Uh, Slaves could earn money, slaves could live on their own in some sense, uh, and report, if you will, to work. Uh, Slaves could, in various ways, earn enough money to buy their freedom. It wasn't necessarily, though it was in some instances, the kind of slavery where a person was forced into it. It was more likely to be a situation where someone was born into it. Your parents were slaves. Or someone who owed a debt, therefore they indentured themselves to the person to whom they owed a debt or to someone who could pay their debt until that debt was paid. Uh, it was temporary, generally, rather than permanent. You remember in in First Coloss- in, uh, Corinthians, Paul speaks uh, to slaves there as well. And he says to them, uh, basically, if you can get your freedom, then you should, you should avail yourself of that opportunity. 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul writes, Were you a slave when called, that is, when called to follow Christ? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. And so it was possible for them to, to, to become free. Now again, please understand, as I said, this kind of slavery still was no walk in the park. You still belonged to another you were still understood in the times that you were a slave to be the property of, the, of another. You were referred to really as an animate or a living tool, as an asset, not as a person. You couldn't own property, you couldn't inherit. And of course that could lead itself to all kinds of abuses. And we could only imagine those abuses that could take place even in that sense, but it was somewhat somewhat different than our experience. Uh, one author puts it like this. He says, by contrast, new world slavery, that is the slavery from our own experience, was much more systematically and homogeneously brutal. It was chattel slavery in which the slave's whole person was the property of the master. He or she could be raped or maimed or killed at the will of his owner. In older bond-servant slavery or indentured servanthood, only slaves' productivity, their time and skills, were owned by the master, and only temporarily. African slavery, however, was race-based, and its default mode was slavery for life. Also, the Afri- African slave trade was begun and resourced through kidnapping. And the Bible unconditionally condemns kidnapping and, 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 and trafficking, trafficking in slaves. For instance, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 24, in verse uh, 7 Moses writes this he says if a man is found stealing one of his brothers and uh, of the people of Israel if he treats him as a slave or sells him then that thief shall die so you shall purge evil from your midst in fact as Paul writes to Timothy he he speaks of this as well in 1st Timothy in chapter 1 verse 8 he writes now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. And then he goes on. And thus even here Paul condemns this kind of slavery that's taken one uh, kidnapped. That's taken one and forced them into this life for the rest of their lives. But still, we wonder. We wonder about it. It was pervasive. The the, the workforce in the Roman Empire was basically made up of slaves. Doctors were slaves. Teachers were slaves. Professors were slaves, uh, and all kinds of other help as well. In that. Economy, and so when he speaks of slaves, he's speaking of those in that context who were mostly the workers. Yes, in a different arrangement, in an arrangement that isn't a healthy arrangement, but still a, an arrangement that was understood and pervasive in their culture. So pervasive was it that the historic uh, historian uh, Seneca writes about a proposal that came before uh, the Ro- Roman government to say we should dress the slaves all alike. And it was defeated. And the reason it was defeated was because of the fear that everyone would see that in many cases the slaves outnumbered the rest, so pervasive in the culture. But still we wonder, why is it that Paul didn't, didn't speak to it? Why didn't he outlaw it? And, and I would suggest this, and it isn't my original suggestion by any means but it's been suggested throughout history that the, the very seeds of the destruction of slavery were given by Paul and by others who wrote in the context of the New Testament because they changed the very hearts of people for instance Paul writes in First Corinthians 7 like this and he writes to slaves you can only imagine hearing this and what it would do in that kind of a context. First uh, Corinthians 7, verse 19, Paul writes, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? He said, Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each, has, each was called, let him uh, remain with God. In other words, he's saying, listen, I know what it's like on the outside, but on the inside, you really are free because Christ has come and taken the bondage of that true slavery, that slavery to sin. He says, understand that now you belong to God. In fact, he speaks to everyone who is a believer. You all belong to him. If you've been bought by Christ, bought with a price, you are his. And so you see, as all people, indeed slaves, begin to think of themselves as free, really free. Free of sin, free of that which holds us in eternal bondage. He says, now live this out in the context of this life wherever you're called. If you can find yourself to be freed from this slavery in the present day, do it. But, but if you can't understand, you're still free in the midst of that. In fact, one 19th century Scottish theologian put it like this. He said, Christianity did not rudely assault the forms of social life or seek to force even a justifiable revolution by external appliances or external means. He said, such an enterprise would have quenched the infant religion in blood, the gospel achieved a nobler feat. It didn't stand by in disdain and refuse to speak to the slave until his freedom was gained and until his shackles fell from his arms. No, it went down into his degradation, took him by the hand, uttered words of kindness in his ear, and gave him a liberty which fetters could not abridge and tyranny could not suppress. You see, in this day, Christianity was a, a, a minority distinct minority in the whole culture in fact in some sense it was an illegal minority it was a persecuted minority and so the real question was how can we as believers live in the midst of this world and so Paul spoke to slaves and masters in that context but he broke the back of this slavery by telling slaves that they were free by telling masters that they had to treat their slaves fairly. Indeed, you might remember the one little book in the New Testament that deals with a slave, a runaway slave, a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. And it's the little book of Philemon. Philemon, slave owner, had had lost one of his slaves. One of his slaves, Onesimus, had run away, and in his running away, ran into Paul and came to faith. And so Paul then writes to Philemon and says, I want you to accept him back as a brother. No one would have uttered such words if Philemon would have accepted Onesimus back. And we trust he did as a brother. He'd have ended any thought of slavery. He says, this is how you're to do it. Receive him back as your brother. That would be like me saying to you consider your computer to be your brother there would be no category in our brains for that there was no category in Philemon's brain for that until Paul put it in there he said no 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 if you're thinking like God you're living worthy of Christ you'll see this man as your brother Paul doesn't really say why he doesn't address it as we would think he should address it. But he speaks to slaves and masters. Now I wonder then what application could there be for us in this? As I said, when I read the word wives, there were wives. When I read the word husbands, there were husbands. When I read the word children, there were children. When I read the word parents there were parents fathers there were fathers but no slaves no masters so how do we understand this well certainly i think in the context of our work life in fact worst case scenario work life because though we're not slaves and masters we're in situations where we're obliged to do work for others and there's some in authority over others who are who are obliged then to make certain that that work is done and to prescribe that work, So the question is, how, how do we understand that kind of relationship where, where one is to work for another and, and one is to supervise another, one is to be the boss of another? Uh, how do we understand that kind of a relationship? How then do we walk worthy of Christ uh, in the midst of that? And, and, and I think we gain something from that. Because we realize then, even in this worst-case scenario of slaves and masters, if they could walk worthy of Christ in the, middle of, in, in the midst of that kind of situation, can we not walk worthy of Christ in the midst of the situation, the work situation in which we find ourselves? Because you see, work is in itself inherently good. Work in itself is inherently good it 's inherently good because we 're created in the image of God, and he works we, we read in Genesis of the creation, and the scripture tells us at the end of all of that that God rested from his his work. Uh, we read in psalm <clears throat> one eleven this morning as, as as I read our call to worship that uh, uh, that God is indeed one who One who works. We read, Great are the works of the Lord. And and he laid out his works that are to be remembered. It says he provides food for those who fear him. Um, He he gives an inheritance as part of the blessing of his works. The works of his hand are faithful and just. So so we see that God indeed works. Uh, Jesus made mention to the Pharisees, He said, I am working, and my Father. Is working. Work's inherently good. It's something that we're we're called to do because we're in his image. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, we read this. When no brush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So it was important that there be someone on the earth to work it. Uh, verse 15 in chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's what we're to do. We're to, we're to work. We're created in the image of God. Work is inherently good. And so our work isn't inherently good simply because we can witness of Christ there. Now, it's important. Our work is certainly that which is missional, That is, that which is a place where we can go and we can, we, can, we can demonstrate the truth of Christ, we can speak of Christ to others, and all of that, that's good to do. In fact, we need to live our lives everywhere in such a way that speaks well of Christ so that his word would not be maligned so that he wouldn't be reviled but but rather that people could see the hope that's in us and and ask us about that hope that we might share reverently and respectfully uh, about that but but so so work is certainly a place that's missional but, but but that isn't what makes it inherently good what makes it inherently good is that it reflects god work is good it's good to work because that means we're in the means of God, it's, 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 it's essential to our humanness. And so God calls us to work. In that sense, we say that work is sacred. All of life is sacred. It's sacred because it's all to be lived unto God. It's all to be lived in the name of our Lord Jesus. A little expression that I've been using so far this morning from, from Colossians 3.17 that, that speaks that, that in everything that we do or say, we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That sense of doing everything in His name means that, that He should be able to put His name on whatever it is that we say or do and say, yes, yes, that's consistent with who I am. Yes, that's right. I, I could have said that. I, I could have done that. And so all of life, therefore, is sacred. All of life, therefore, is holy in that sense. And our work is to be that. Our work is to be sacred. Our work is to be worship. It's to reflect the worth of God. He works, we work, thus we are, we are to work. Um, so Paul lays this out, this kind of work, and, and notice. How he puts it, there's a structure to this, just like there's a structure in all of these relationships. He says, slaves obey, workers obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters. And so there's a sense of submission of those who work for others. And this submission isn't a bad thing. This submission isn't degrading. Now, in that context, as a slave, it could well be degrading, depending on who you viewed your master to be. But you see, when God calls us to follow Christ, he puts within us a heart of submission. Remember, we considered this when we thought of wives, when we considered their situation in regards to husbands. And do you remember the passage in Ephesians, in chapter 5, verse 21, uh, as part of what reflects our being filled with the Spirit, he writes, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I mean, that's the the heart of the believer, one who's humble, who knows who they are before God, sees their merits before God and says, that's not very impressive. And they're humbled by that. So we don't put ourselves over another. It's one who is meek, one who realizes that God is their advocate. They need him. They come before him, expressing their need for him. And thus they can set aside their own rights in order to serve another. In fact, all of that is consistent with who Jesus is. You remember Philippians chapter 2. The apostle writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Paul goes on and says, this is the mind, this is the attitude of Christ himself. That's exactly what he did. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, emptying himself, taking the very form of a servant. He says, no, I'm God. But in your interests, I'll humble myself and serve you. And that's precisely what he did. He said the Son of Man hasn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so in each one of these situations of submission, of obedience, Paul's saying even to the worker, he's saying, now here's how I want you to understand yourself. And this isn't, this isn't, this isn't degrading. This, this should just be part of who you are as a Christian. This should be something you can take on, Easily, if you will. Not feeling degraded, not not feeling put upon. But to put the interests of your employer, of your boss, in their case, of their master, ahead of their own. And to really, to really serve. And then masters notice in... Verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. You see, you see, just because one is is in, in an earthly position above another uh, doesn't mean that's an exalted kind of a position. Because always in Scripture to believers, to, to, to be in authority over another is to be in authority over another so that you may serve them for their well-being. And so when he says treat them fairly, treat them justly, as he said, the fathers don't treat them harshly as he's talked to husbands don't be harsh there's this sense of servant leading and so to be an authority isn't an exalted position it's just another position another position of responsibility so he says treat them justly and fairly nothing difficult really about that for anyone who is a believer Because you see that while work is worship and work is sacred and all of that and work is how we image God, sin has affected our work relationships just as it has affected every other kind of relationship. Work can easily become an idol. Work can easily become that by which we define ourselves. Work can easily become uh, something that, that directs us. And so even when there's a conflict between what work might say and these things concerning how God would have us live, work might win out. We might say, no, I'm going to do it work's way as opposed to God's way. I'm going to do it the way that my, uh, the world tells me I ought to work as opposed to the way God tells me how I ought to live. And so it's easy then for us to find ourselves sacrificing our families on the altar of work or to engaging in other kinds of activities that would be completely displeasing to God. It messes up our motives. We we rather than give ourselves for others, we take from others as much as we possibly can to better our own situation. And so we find it very dangerous in that setting as well. And so it's dangerous for us because of sin. It may cause us to steal. It may cause us to lie about how it is that we work. It may cause us to slander our employers to make ourselves look better. So we must be careful because sin affects the way that we work and the motives by which we work. So Paul says, I want you to do this. I want you to live as a Christian in this. So if you're a worker, I want you to be submissive in everything to those who are your earthly masters. Now, that little expression, in everything, doesn't mean absolutely. In other words, it means that if your employer desires for you to sin, don't. Now, there may be consequences to that. You can only imagine the consequences in a context in a world where there are slaves and masters. You can only imagine what that must be like if if a slave would have to say, no, I can't do that because that's against my real master in order to do that, in order to sustain that kind of situation. And so as employers come and they want you to lie or steal, of course you wouldn't do that. You don't submit, you don't obey in that kind of thing any more than a wife would submit to her husband and sin, any more than a child would submit to parents who require them to sin. Of course, if, a, if an employer asks you to <clears throat> steal or lie, it's rather short-sighted on their part, because if you'll steal, from, uh, steal for them, you will steal from them as well, I suppose. And if you'll lie for them, you would lie to them. So that's really short-sighted. But, but we understand that, that whole thing. And so it isn't that. But there's something else to this as well that may even be more apropos. And that is that when when the apostle says that we're to obey in everything, meaning that we're to obey even when it's unpleasant. It may not be work that we like. It may not be work that necessarily satisfies us. But we're to obey and we're to submit even in those kinds of situations. When When it's unpleasant, when we'd rather not, when we'd rather not, do it it's interesting if, if you pick up if you go to bookstores these days to pick up books about work and finding your calling and all of that there will always be a section in there on encouraging you to do that which satisfies your passion which you like to do I have a suspicion that if slaves had libraries or bookstores and they went into them and talked about work there wouldn't be anything in there about you know finding agreeable work they didn't have those kinds of choices. In fact, throughout history, it's, 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 it's really a modern phenomenon that we have the luxury, really, of doing work that might well be pleasant or that we can choose among a number of different options. That's really unique to the modern world. So that really wasn't even a question that Paul would ask. We asked that question, and certainly... I think Paul would say, if you're free to take work that's good to do, that's fun for you to do, enjoyable for you to do, satisfies your passions and fits with your giftedness and all that, by all means, do it. But but even if you can't, I want you to work well and honestly and sincerely because because work is good. and, And so you should submit to that one who has authority over you in that and do that work. And to really do it well and to be content in it. You see, that little expression whatever you do, in word to do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Meaning you're just not doing it, gritting your teeth, doing it. You're not just bearing doing it. You're doing it thankfully. You're saying, yes, God, thank you for this work that you've called me to do. Thank you for this work that you've given me to do. Thank you for this life that you've called me to live and so it's to be done thankfully without grumbling without without complaining there's a sense of contentedness here and the question then is how do we do our work contentedly when it's disagreeable when we don't really want to do it when it is the kind of work that we really like to do how do we learn to be content in that situation you might remember the apostle speaks to contentment in his letter to the church in philippi philippians in chapter he writes this in verse 12 he says I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in other words he says "I've, I've experienced all kinds of situations and we should think about that brought low means that wasn't terribly agreeable right or when he says to abound that sounds very agreeable But he says, in both kinds of circumstances, he says, I've learned this. He says, in every and any circumstance, I've learned the secrets of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Meaning, if I focus my attention upon Christ, he will help me. If I focus my attention upon Christ, He will help me. He will satisfy me. When I realize that Christ is above, that He is seated at the right hand of the Father, when I realize that He's ruling and reigning, when I realize that He's sovereign over all things, and when I realize that the Lord Christ is wise, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him, when I realize that That he is is good, that he really does love me. And I realize that he is the one, therefore, who has ordained this particular circumstance. And I realize that he's the one who can change this particular circumstance, but isn't. What'll I do? Well, I can be content. Why? Because it's Christ. This isn't arbitrary. This isn't purposeless. This isn't a situation where, where it's just sort of happening, nor is it coming at the hand of one who, who isn't powerful and isn't good and isn't wise and doesn't love me. It's coming from him, through him. And so Paul would think, I think, when he was not abounding, but rather when he was brought low, It's no accident that I'm here. Christ still is ruling and reigning. He still is the one who has brought me to this place. And he loves me and he's wise. There's something here. There's something here that's for me. There's something here that's going to work good. There's something here that I need. There's something here that's necessary for me to be right here in this spot. That's my contentment thus. Thus at work, when it's a disagreeable circumstance, when it's something you'd rather not do but must because it's your job what do you do, how do you find contentment there do you just kick against it, do you complain against it, Do do you try to do as little as possible he says no, no, Paul would say in the same sense of all of this work, do it heartily that is enthusiastically grab a hold of it, on what basis I don't like this, I know but who's your boss who's the one who's ordained this task the lord christ so take it and do it heartily for him you see because he has you in this place and it's a good place in that sense because he's working something in you he's working something of good for the kingdom he's working something good for the, the whole church if you will in the context of that circumstance of your life it says do that work he says but but don't do it by way of eye service that little expression eye service means to be an eye slave which means to be a slave to someone else's eye which means that you're only going to do it if they're watching he says no 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 don't do it just for their eyes don't do it as people pleasers just when they're looking but do it with sincerity of heart how can we do it with sincerity of heart only when we really believe that it's christ who's behind all of this That he's the one who's ordaining the event. He's the one who's ordaining the task. He's the one who's ordaining the circumstance. Fearing the Lord. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. You can say, you know, if I do this, my boss really isn't going to notice. If I do this, it really isn't going to matter that much. You can only imagine a slave saying, well, you know, if I do this heartily, why should I work so hard? My, my master doesn't even think I'm a person I, I, I'm not going to get any reward from this the apostle says ah yes you will in fact you've already received an inheritance it's already waiting for you it's there God will not renege he is faithful so do it unto him you're serving the Lord Christ. Verse 25, the warning, he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back, for the wrong he's done. And there is no partiality. What's he mean by that? Well, well, to those who work, to those slaves in that context, he's saying, understand that, that, that God sees and he'll discipline. He won't be mocked. He also says to the, to the slave, you don't need to take matters into your own hands. Now, we have a context where we can file grievances. We have a context where we can leave our jobs and all of that sort of thing. And we got to take advantage of those as they arise for justice sake and so forth and so on. But remember, he's saying to people who are stuck in their work situation, stuck in this situation, and he's saying, listen, uh, don't worry. God will deal with your master. You don't have to be vengeful. You don't have to resort to that which is sin. So even though if your master is not paying you enough, don't steal. God will deal with his wrongdoing. Even though your master is, is forcing you to work more than you think you should, don't lie about what you're working Even though your boss might not be the most kind and just and all of that, don't take matters into your own hands by slandering him or her. Don't speak falsely against him or her. Don't do that. God is at work. He knows what's going on. Now again, in our context, if we could take advantage of some legal means and all of that available to us, we ought to do that. We have the right to do that. They would have done that if it was even available to them. But he's saying, don't take matters into your own hands. And sin, trust God. Same thing with the masters. Don't take matters into your own hands and sin. Remember, God is looking, if you do this wrongly, He's the one who disciplines. And so don't treat your employees, don't treat your slaves unfairly, don't treat them harshly, be kind to them. God sees. I think what strikes me most here in the midst of all of this and all of these relationships whether they be in the context of marriage in the context of, of family, context of work in society it's a little expression the apostle Peter uses that I find necessary to inform my own life if I could just lift it from its context it's in 1 Peter chapter 2 but it is lifted from its context he speaks of living mindful of God living mindful of God that is all the time having God on our minds all the time understanding that that God is here and my whole life is to be drawn to him and he is to inform everything about my life And, and there's nothing that's going on in the context of my life, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in family, whether it's in work, whether it's in the context of a social order. There isn't anything going on in the context of life that God doesn't know, that God isn't sovereign over, that God hasn't ordained. And thus, you see, I realize then, mindful of Him, my task, my job, my purpose is to do everything In the name of the Lord Jesus. To live worthy of him. So that in the context of my work life. I'm doing that. Upon which Christ can put his name. Say yes. I did that. Yes. I said that. Always giving thanks. To God. The father. Through him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've made us to be workers, yet our sin has distorted that in various kinds of ways. And so, Father, I pray for me, for us, that you could enable us, would enable us, to be mindful, God, that you are with us, that you've called us to work, that we would overcome all these sinful tendencies. And follow after you. Father we pray that you would be honored by. The work that we do. That it would image you. That you would also work in such a way. That we would be satisfied. By it. Content. In it. Father I pray for those who are. Finding themselves in especially disagreeable. Circumstances these days. As many would. Some unemployed. Some underemployed some doing jobs that they would rather not do but need to I pray that each of us would find contentment in the work that we do not because we just simply resolve to it but because we realize mindful of your sovereignty that you've ordained this task for us to do so I pray that we're able and I pray that we're able in a way that gives you honor for that. Well, we know many would find life, life's contentment difficult at the moment as they struggle with various things. We pray, I do, for Carrie Wood's family. As they grieve the death of her mom, bring peace to them. I pray for this man, Larry Powers, who's been involved with helping with family promise ministry that You would be with him and his family as he faces this inoperable brain tumor. Father, we pray continuously for the Huffman family that you would be with them, be with Eileen most especially, and that you would grant them grace and peace. Father, we give you thanks for Liz's dad as he's getting better, and we pray that you would continue to bring healing in his life. For Leanne's dad, we pray as well. Father, we pray that you would be with us, cause us to live mindful of you and to walk worthy of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.